show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Hello, and welcome to the No Miki Show. I am No Miki Kanz. I'm coming to you today from Puerto Rico the femicide capital of North America. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. 60 women were killed last year because they were women. The island has registered 21 femicides this year alone, and this figure is on track to last year. Yet this year, the police only reported eight murders as they are frequently criticized for under-reporting femicides. So 60 women last year, and already 21 femicides this year alone. It has been this way for years now. A girl or a woman murdered every week for years. Yet the overcarpet of gender equality states April, there was a huge surge, possibly due to the rise in COVID cases and intense lockdown, as the pandemic has created a dangerous situation for many women in in abusive situations. But finally, finally, in January, the new governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Pierluisi, said, okay, enough is enough. The governor declared that the murders of women and girls had created a state of emergency in Puerto Rico after several cries for help. He directed resources and attention at this this, this scourge of of, of gender violence, based violence. So what happened? Well, last Thursday, just a few days ago, Felix Verdejo, a professional, well-known boxer, punched his pregnant lover, his girlfriend, Kishla Rodriguez-Ortiz, in the face. Then, this is horrifying, according to the FBI, he injected her with a syringe filled with an unidentified substance. He bound her hands with the assistance of someone else and her feet with wire and tied her to a heavy block before tossing her off of the Teodoro Moscosco Bridge into the San Juan Lagoon. A very, very busy bridge. In fact, I've driven over it twice in the last couple of days. And then he shot her body multiple times with a pistol. Rodriguez's family says that Verdejo did not want her to have their child. She was pregnant. Her mother said she warned Rodriguez to be careful before, before she told him the results of the pregnancy test. They had been together for 11 years in a complicated relationship. Now, it might be tempting to think that this was some sort of horrifying aberration. After all, Verdejo was a man who made his uh, living off of his fists. He fought in the 2012 Olympics. He had a professional record of 27 wins and only two losses. He knocked out 17 opponents. Perhaps that boxing history makes the murder of Kishla Rodriguez-Ortiz all the more horrible, but it does not make it in the least bit exceptional. Gender-based violence has been endemic here. Just the day before Rodriguez-Ortiz was murdered, Andrea Ruiz was found burned to death in a mountain town. She had asked for an order of restraint, restraining order, against her ex-partner who was threatening her, but she was denied by the courts. 
Andrea Ruiz did just what we are told to do. Go to court, file suits against our abusers, get a restraining order if you're threatened, go to the cops. If you don't understand why we are so angry right now, then you have no idea. We are outraged. She said what she was supposed to do, she did what she was supposed to do and said what she was supposed to do, and the system failed her. As he took office in January, the governor of Puerto Rico tweeted, quote, for too long, vulnerable victims have suffered the consequences of systemic machismo, inequality, discrimination, lack of education, lack of guidance, and above all, lack of action, end quote. So we all felt encouraged that at least there would be action. He issued his emergency declaration. But here's the catch. In a territory where even the governor's allocation of $7 million in funds can be overrided by a fiscal control board, the fiscal management board that was not elected has the supreme power over all of the democratically elected lawmakers on the island. And the fiscal management board, that control board, has allocated only $225,000 towards the femicide crisis. So now what? They promise they are in the works of allocating funds to fight gender violence. But it's too late to save Keishla Rodriguez-Ortiz and her unborn child. It's too late, way too late, and too little to save Andrea Ruiz. You can't let them die in vain. Zoanda Vila Colon, who's a spokesperson for La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, uh, told Refinery29, this is a feminist organization, a grassroots feminist organization, Zuanda Vila Colon said, quote, sadly, these cases have revealed the deep failures of the system that's supposed to help and protect women. And so every day before these murders, these femicides, and now today and yesterday and tomorrow, they take to the streets. The island is outraged, but the world should be outraged because this is happening everywhere. There is a surge because of COVID, but the surge is only revealed the systemic issues. This is happening in New York City. This is happening in Nebraska. This is happening in Mexico. This is happening in Guatemala. This is happening in conjunction with the police covering up the real numbers. This has to be addressed. I'm gonna show you a clip of a protest uh, outside of the governor's mansion demanding more because the governor uh, issued a 30-day mourning period for a previous governor who passed away two nights ago. And naturally, people are outraged that he took that more seriously than standing up to the fiscal control board and quickly, there's been a little bit of action, but not enough, uh, issuing reforms to the justice system that has revealed itself to be inadequate. When a woman knows that they're in danger, they shouldn't have to have the person next to them that's putting them in danger to be able to get that restraining order. Okay, uh, you guys know I love it. It's Sunset Lake CBD. They're a farmer-owned company that ships quality craft CBD 
from their farm in Vermont directly to your door. They have a farm that was once a Ben and Jerry's. I mean, literally, like, if you're going to pick any farm, that would be the one to go to. Uh, good juju, right? Uh, the Ben and Jerry's farm in Vermont. Uh, and they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Customers of Sunset Lake CBD support sustainable agriculture that enhances rural economies and creates meaningful employment in their community. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour and employees own the majority of the company and they support independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The David Pakman Show. My family loves the fudge. We've bought uh, all sorts of, we do it as a team now. Everybody buys it together. Um, I don't know why, because you can individually, I don't know, I guess it's, I guess it's more sustainable. Uh, but, you know, guys, if you guys and gals, mostly guys, because this is YouTube politics. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on, guys and four girls, women, whoever, anybody. Uh, we are all inclusive here. You can get 20% off of your order if you type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, all capital or not, I'm sure they'll take it both ways, at sunsetlakecbd.com. Dorsey, what should everybody buy if their first first purchase? What's their uh, entry point? The gummies. Go all, uh, go all in on the gummies right away. Right. Get a big one, too, because you'll regret it if you just get the, you know, uh, just get a big one. It's like... That's it. Don't share with me, because I stopped buying the gummies because I would eat all of them. And I'd be like, I'm so chill. And then I would sleep for 10 hours. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to, if you want to graduate, go for the tincture after that, because then yeah. you know you can just put that with your water and you know drink it right before bed, drink it throughout the day, have it with your coffee. It it doesn't really taste like you know, no. like that kind of uh, CBD stuff you're used to. It's 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 really good stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's what I would graduate to next. It's not the CBD that I bought at the bodega for one hundred and fifty dollars when I was trying CBD out. That was crap. It tasted bad, and it was a I didn't know how much it was. Forget, I don't th forget that stuff. That is, oh, yeah, that kind of turned me off of CBD for a long time. And then I tried this stuff and it, this is, this is the real deal. So yeah, uh, don't, don't worry about that gross not taste thing. or not working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> say no to Bodega CBD. Say yes to Sunset Lake CBD. 20% off. Type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, sunsetlakecbd.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show, live from Puerto Rico. Uh, I'm very excited. Another territory we're going to be talking about. <laughs> There's some similarities here. Uh, Andrew Ross is the author of Stone Men, the Palestinians Who Built Israel, published by Verso Books. He's a professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU, and he's a social activist. He's a frequent contributor to The Nation, Village Voice, New York Times, among many other places. All right, so this is a, an interesting story. Uh, how did you learn about... And I'd rather have you explain it, but how did you learn that uh, stonemasons from Palestine were involved in building Israel? Okay, good question. Um, well, I, I was uh, helping uh, some colleagues make a film in the West Bank, and they'd invited me to uh, interview workers who were crossing the green line at checkpoints to go and work in Israel. And uh, in, in the course of uh, Doing the interviews, I, I gathered some knowledge about what they do and, and also uh, how crucial they are to the Israeli economy. Because there, there's a, as many as 150,000 of them who cross the green line every day to do this kind of work. And, um, and then I started doing a little of my own research to, to figure out how useful a book would be 
I mean, if you if you want to write a book, you you better make sure it's going to be a useful book. <laughs> and so I discovered that uh, there's actually very very little written about what Palestinians do on a daily basis to put food on the table for their families. Like a lot of the attention of Palestine watchers is on other things like land dispossession or human rights violations or uh, mass incarceration and the like, and and all for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's very little attention to Palestinian livelihoods. And and I also realized um, that no one had written uh, a, a proper study of the stone and marble industry mm. in, in the West Bank, which is such a crucial part of the Palestinian economy. So uh, let's start with that, uh, just the industry in general, and then, and then we can talk a little bit more about uh, what, what the day in the life of a Palestinian worker in Israel is like. But how large is this industry? Uh, well, it's, it's the biggest private sector employer in the West Bank. Hmm. Uh, it contributes the largest share of uh, uh, Palestine's GDP and the largest share of its exports. For such a tiny population, it, it's actually the world's 12th largest stone producer. I mean, just behind the U.S. and, and in front of Russia. Um, and uh, stone, the, the, the limestone I'm talking about is a dolomitic limestone. It's some of the best limestone in the world. It's one of the two natural resources that Palestinians have and that Israel does not have or has a very short supply. One of them is water. And Israelis siphon off a lot of that water using advanced pumping technologies. The other one is this very precious limestone. And uh, it's um, the process of uh, uh, quarrying it and, and, and finishing and cutting it in the workshops and factories and then, uh, and then um, uh, deploying it to actually build uh, comprises about 1,200 firms overall, most of them small family-owned firms. So it's an industry that's very much under Palestinian control. And, um, and as for supply, some of it's used obviously locally, some of it is exported to other countries in the Middle East, but most of it, more than 70% of it, uh, goes to Israel, Israel itself, or to Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So this is, this is the paradox of the story, of the very contents of Palestinian land mm -hmm. used to build out the state, the Israeli state, the occupier state. In effect, that's the, that's the tragedy at the heart of it. Um, the the people who own these companies. Uh, how, why, why Israel? Why not uh, do more work in other countries that are a little bit more hospitable? Um, well, they have little choice. The Palestinian producers have no choice. I mean, they, uh, they're under occupation. They have no choice but to supply the stone, basically. And, and the stone is, is, is in their, you know, is within the orbit. Uh, and, and they're also very limited in terms of what they can export. Palestinians mm -hmm. are... Uh, are, are basically restricted in terms of their exports. So very little of that stone can be exported. Very little Palestinian produce is exported. Uh, so Israel takes most of it, in effect, and uh, and basically uh, depends on it for its for its building needs. Um, the Israel the Israeli state wouldn't exist without Palestinian stone. 
and also the Palestinian labor that traveled with it. And so most of my book is based on interviews with these workers, you know, from the quarries, in the factories, construction sites, and also in, in the villages that lie close to Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Um, a lot of the owners of, of the of the firms. Of the firms. Are, are they selling it at like market rate? I'm, I'm very curious like what these deals are looking like I'm, and and also why and if, if it's possible for Israelis to own parts of the company. I assume not, but I'm, I'm curious why they go with this arrangement and not just, just overt seizure of of the businesses? Uh -huh. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, most of the <clears throat> most of the firms are located in uh, area B or area C. The West Bank is broken down into B and A, B and C. So they're, they're sort of under Palestinian control, these areas. Uh, Israeli companies began to quarry in area C Mm -hmm. uh, for a while in, until there were lawsuits lodged. Uh, it's against international law for an occupying power to exploit the resources of another of an occupied country in that way. And so uh, the lawsuit put a stop to those practices. But that, that's the main reason why there isn't Israeli ownership uh, of the industries and, and it remains in Palestinian hands. Um Okay, so, so what are the conditions like? I mean, it, it, you, you have the owners who I assume are not making market rate. Just I'm, my assumption would be if they were to sell to another country, Dubai, Greece, whatever, pick a country, uh, they would be getting a higher rate. But simultaneously, they're still the bosses. So it, do they have uh, oversight over the conditions and, and, and how they treat their workers? Or is, is that up to somebody else? Well, they, there are a lot of restrictions on how they actually um, uh, do their business. One of them, for example, is that Palestinian producers are not allowed to use uh, explosives in the quarries. And, um, and this puts them at a considerable disadvantage. Uh, they have to use a fairly primitive uh, uh, stone cutting machinery. Mm -hmm. it means they can produce a lot less than, than they would otherwise, uh, obviously. And there are all sorts of other restrictions on, on the logistics of actually delivering the stone and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, it's under constraint. They operate under constraint. And to some degree, those conditions are passed down as with any other employer are passed down to the workers themselves, who, as you, I think your question implies, have a, a particularly hard time of it. Um, they're, they're relatively, you know, well paid by industry standards in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. But uh, the workers uh, can earn a lot more if they actually travel across the green line and go to work in Israel, which, which most of them will do, given the chance, given, given a work permit, which is issued by Israel itself. And to do that um, involves... Uh, most of your day. I mean, workers mm -hmm. getting up at four o'clock in the morning from their villages, traveling from there to the checkpoints. It's a very arduous journey across the green line. It's a dangerous journey. And then they travel to their workplace sites. They come back and they're often not back until late in the evening. So there's 
there's really very little time to spend with their families. It's a very grueling and dangerous uh, uh, routine on a daily basis. Um, who sets these these standards? Why why can't they uh, use explosives? Who, who who's deciding that? Israeli authorities. I mean, doesn't that work against their interests? Don't they want to produce more? And it seems like an odd choice, a stra- strategy for. Um, well, it's only one of the many, many, many constraints that Israeli authorities place on Palestinians' everyday uh, routines and. Mm-hmm terms of business and so on and so forth. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's only one example. I mean, there, there, there are many others that have to do with logistics that uh, Palestinian producers get very angry about. Um, and, and the workers themselves, of course, are, are also very aware of the constraints placed upon their, the conditions of their travel and also their actual, the, the conditions of their work in, mm. in Israel itself Construction work is very dangerous in Israel in general. There's a lot of accidents on site um, and, uh, and, and very few labor standards applied to Palestinian workers. Plus, there's also the, 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 the dangers of working in the stone industry itself. It's very toxic. It's environmentally damaging, the dust from the stone. And uh, it's sometimes referred to in Palestine as white oil this limestone. And, and there's, there's some similarity with other countries, uh, other underdeveloped countries that rely on oil as their primary natural resource. It's, it's often spoken of as a resource curse because mm-hmm. it's environmentally damaging. And if you travel through the West Bank, you can see these beautiful hilltop landscapes that are scarred by open, uh, you know, open mining and quarries. <clears throat> um, are they at risk of, of, of running out of limestone? I mean, it's not a large area. I'm curious how this you know, industry continues to exist. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, some of the best limestone is, is, is mined out. And um, there's still a lot left in Area C. Mm-hmm. But Palestinian producers can't access it. They, they do it, you know, they do it behind the soldiers' backs on Saturday and Sunday. Wow. Um, or they bribe the soldiers, you know, take their machines in and do it. But uh, the, the, the fate of, um, of that stone is, is still in the balance. It's unclear, uh, it's unclear what will happen. But at some point, someone will make a decision because the Israeli, uh, Israel depends on the stone to build out their state. There's a big housing shortage in Israel right now. Mm. And exacerbated by the pandemic, of course, and so the, s- s- at some point that um, that additional resource will have to be tapped. Uh, is there any organizing happening, uh, you know, around the world in Israel with progressives, perhaps, uh, or even in Palestine or the West Bank? Are, are workers organizing? Is there any sort of pushback right now in in how this industry um, functions? Yes, uh, I mean there are there are worker unions in the industry. They're they're yeah. very weak. They're very weak uh, compared to the employers' trade associations. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are, and they're mostly focused on safety conditions, mm-hmm. opposed to you know wages and condi- other conditions. Um, and there there is there is a pressure on the Israeli side by NGOs 
in, in labor groups within Israel that uh, they do go to bat for Palestinian workers who cross the green line. And in some cases, uh, some independent unions uh, that are organizing workers in, uh, in the West Bank settlement, the industrial zones in the settlement. Palestinian unions can't organize there, mm -hmm. even though it's in the West Bank, but Israeli unions can. And one or two of them have been organizing workers there. Really? So the Israeli unions are, are, are organizing, huh? Mm -hmm. It's fascinating in solidarity. Okay. Um, I mean, where, 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 do they, where do they go from here if they're organizing? Is, is there, the government is obviously in complete disarray in Israel right now. Uh, is there any, any hope, any responsiveness? Uh, uh, it's, it's steady work and there, there are steady gains. I mean, there, there, are, being, there are gains recorded every year. Uh, it's, um, it's, it, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult to organize across the green line because there's mm -hmm. a lot of distrust and suspicion, especially, you know, between Palestinians and Israelis. It's not really, it's not supposed to happen officially, but, uh, but I found that it does. And, and I, I recorded some of that in, in my book. Um, the half of the book, however, is about the, the history that leads up to this. Uh, the very rich and venerable history of Palestinian stonemasonry, which is uh, a very important story in the region. Um, Palestinians have always had venerated stonemasons. Every, every small village had master masons who designed and built. They built everything. And over time, that, uh, that tradition has, has flowed into this, um, this custom of... Uh, of having stone workers be the, you know, the, the basic construction workforce, mm -hmm. not in Palestine, but also in Israel. Oh, also in Israel. So there's, there, and they, they, are they coordinated in any way? Well, the Palestine, uh, Israeli Palestinians have also obviously been, you know, been active in the workforce. I mean, they're, they're outnumbered um, by the Palestinians from the West Bank. Mm -hmm. Israeli Palestinians are, slightly higher in, in the packing order when it comes to, you know, jobs. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, uh, you know, the lowest paying jobs in construction will be done by either by Palestinians from the West Bank or by migrant workers who've been brought in from uh, parts of the world as a replacement workforce for Palestinians. Wow. Wow. Um, before we, we wrap up, can you just give us like a, a, a basic illustration of the con other conditions living in the West Bank as a Palestinian? You, you talked about uh, their travel restrictions. I mean, the water situation is abysmal. Um, could you kind of describe, you know, a basic 30,000 foot perspective of, of what it's like uh, to live a day in life in the West Bank? Well, I can only really speak about the workers themselves who I, who I talk to uh, because they're the ones I have most knowledge of. I mean, I, I, I spend time in Palestine, but not, you know, not as someone really studying the, the landscape. I'm, I'm more familiar with the, the psychology of, of humiliation um, that, that most of the workers in that industry have to contend with because they are, you know, they're working for the occupier. Um, and as one of them put it, uh, 
we build their we build their houses while they demolish our homes and and the difference between houses and homes there was was very important to him um, at the same time they are um, they're very steadfast in their resilience I mean this is a Palestinian resistance philosophy called sumu steadfastness they despite all of the indignities and the obstacles thrown in their path often on a daily basis just to get to work mm -hmm. they continue to show up I mean day after day they go through this routine and they've been doing this for decades mm -hmm. that resilience really impressed me um, I don't know if it would be within my spirit to do so um, but they have no alternative and this is the this is the the, the, the technical um, tragedy of the system, uh, the alternative is a starvation wage. Hmm. They don't go to work in Israel. The alternative is a starvation wage. So it's a compulsory workforce. Mm -hmm. And for Israelis, it's a win-win situation because they will issue work permits, um, but only on condition that the workers and their families keep the peace. So if someone steps out of line, their families and their family or their extended kinship um, and gets into trouble gets arrested which is very easy to do if you're Palestinian then you lose your work permit you lose your livelihood mm -hmm. so it's a very effective form of uh, economic pacification it's a very effective form of social control of mm -hmm. this uh, of this population and and if you asked uh, you know, why would Israeli employers prefer Palestinians to migrant workers, for example, who, who you would think might be even more under pressure and, and vulnerable? Well, migrant workers send, tend to send their wages back to their countries. Right. Palestinians take their wages home and they buy Israeli goods Interesting. in the West Bank at Israeli prices. So it's a win-win economically. And also they go home every night. There's a computer a commuter workforce. So it's not like the migrant workers who are there, who are a presence in the cities in Israel and, and who might pose a, 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 a burden on the state, let's say, in terms of resources they might need. So it's a very well, uh, very well thought out system of economic pacification. Fascinating. Uh, Andrew Ross, uh, go check out his book. It's Verso, uh, Verso Publisher, our, our partner over at the book club, uh, the TNS book club. It's called Stone Men, the Palestinians who built Israel. Uh, really interesting. I, I'm, what a fascinating thing to discover while working there. Uh, you can check out his book right now. It's on versobooks.com and you can order it wherever you buy your books, as long as it's not Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. We'll be right back with Jordan Zacharin and Simon Rowe to talk about all the news that's happening right now. And I just got a breaking news alert. What is going on now? All right, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll be right back. Now that the Wi-Fi is working, uh, I'm excited to welcome to the show Simon Rode, who is a, a former organizer for Bernie Sanders 2020. Uh, he's a socialist writer and he is a producer over here at the TNS. 
And Jordan Zacharin, even though you've told me 9,000 times, I don't know your new title because for some reason I didn't save it. Uh, we are a quality show here. <laughs> I got a lot of hats, okay? I'm doing a lot of jobs right now. But you are, uh, you are over at, well, first off, you, you're the founder of Progressives Everywhere, a newsletter, uh, but you're a producer at? More Perfect Union. More Perfect Union. I knew that was, I was just like, I don't want to screw it up. It's okay. I follow you guys. It's new. It's new. It's new. For me, no. I mean, it's kind of new for them, but for you. definitely new for me. Yeah, that's great. All right, so I want to talk about some very, very important uh, news. I don't know if you guys heard, but the center, uh, the, the CIA, let's let's the the, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, is now woke. We've made it, guys. We've made it. Let's roll the ad. When I was 17, I quoted Zora Neale Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me in my college application essay. The line that spoke to me stated simply, I am not tragically colored. There is no sorrow damned up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. At 17, I had no idea what life would bring, but Zora's sentiment articulated so beautifully how I felt as a daughter of immigrants then and now. Nothing about me was or is tragic. I am perfectly made. I can wax eloquent on complex legal issues in English while also belting Guayaquil de mis amores in Spanish. I can change a diaper with one hand and console a crying toddler with the other. I am a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box checking exercise. I am a walking declaration a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has what? been asked. What? I did not sneak into CIA. My employment was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in and I earned my way up the ranks of this organization. I am educated, qualified, and competent. And sometimes I struggle. I struggle feeling like I could do more, be more to my two sons. And I struggle leaving the office when I feel there's so much more to do. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, oh I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am proud of me, full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you, whoever you are. Know your worth. Command your space. Uh, okay, I'm just going to lead with this. The best spies. <laughs> are the ones who fit in. Uh, I'm unapologetically going to uh, occupy the space of bombing my, you know, the community that I came from. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry, there's so much here. There's so much here. There's so much here. First off, it sounded like a therapy class, uh, therapy session, not, it was like, it was like an AA meeting. Like I am, what was that guys? That was insane. Hmm. Jordan. Well, I gotta say, first off, her cover's blown. Right, like if she was to do a spy, like that's not going to work anymore. So just that alone, I don't know what, what's going on there. Um, oh I want to say God. two things. Uh, I think there was a point where she uh, meets Gina Haspel, I think, and she's like the the architect of the torture 
um, regime. So, I mean, great job. She's joined great company. I, I honestly, I think it's maybe like a psyops thing where they did that and they're going to show that liberals and progressives and, and people on the left are so angry about it. They're going to say, look, they, we, we go with woke and they won't even accept us. They're, they're not patriotic. Like they're, they couldn't have been making this in good faith, assuming that people would be, uh, assuming that people would be like, Oh yeah, that, that's right. We should go join the, um, the CIA and, uh, torture people. Like there's no, I mean, if they thought that that was going to attract people, then like, I would love to advise the CIA and just waste their money. I mean, here's the thing, Simon, when people join the CIA, are, do they know that they're joining a torture institution or do they think they're like, you know, in Homeland and like really getting the bad guys? And I, I feel like it's none of the above. I feel like you're recruited. Like they get, they, they, they look for you. They see how you test how I, I don't know i mean listen as much as people say i'm part of the cia i actually don't understand <laughs> no i mean i know someone who did an internship at the cia and he really thought that he was i mean he, he just thought it was like a great opportunity to like i don't know contributes i don't know i don't really know but like i don't think that they're all like excited to go bomb other places right um while that is, of course, what the CIA is about, that and, and sort of destabilizing countries all over the world, uh, you know, for American business interests, mostly. Um, but yeah, it's awful. I think I, it, this is it very much doing the meme, right, of the, you know, the airplane that has like the rainbow colors and the Black Lives Matter and the like, like Democrats versus Republicans, you know, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, it's very much that, and it's just very frustrating to see um, the the way that the establishment co-ops all of our sort of messages, like legitimate messages about intersectionality and identity politics and things like that, that um, just get so distorted. Like I did the focus right at the end of the video, like on her shirt with like the raised fist inside of the- Mija. But, yeah, I mean, it's like what the raised fish is like, what is like you- Resist, you who do you think we're resisting? That was the, there, I who think do you the think is the power? Thing. You work for the power now. Like you, you're not resisting anything anymore. You know, it's very frustrating. Maybe that was in honor of the uh, coups that they that they attempt and they, they support. Maybe that's what that's what it was for. Listen, I, guys, they're <laughs> reforming. They're reforming. They're no longer uh, directly involved in the coups. They have three or four consultants to outsource them. That's how that's it good. works. Well, as long as she doesn't have blood on her hands. I think we spent like we spent like 20, 30 years getting just constant CIA propaganda through pop culture anyways. I guess this is kind of the, the next step in a, in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, I even, I, I, I love Homeland. I know what it is, guys. I know what it is. It even got to me. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's James Bond, same thing. Like, you, you don't even realize what you're taking in, and, and it's, it's such a great art form. But, of course, all CIA propaganda. But I would like to show um, another video. There's another version of this video out there right now, another CIA propaganda video, uh, equally as wokey. I've never been like other girls, you know? I've never done what the patriarchy wanted me to do. When I was a little girl playing Marco Polo in the pool with my friends, I would hold their heads underwater and make them tell me where Polo was. <laughs> you know what I mean? When we played I Spy, I would always spy the communists, right? I would always spy the communists. And so just things like that. You know, in college, uh, when other girls were doing acid, I was the one giving them the acid. And then I would psychologically torture them for information. 
<laughs> and so I've always just been uh, a little bit different. And that's why I joined the CIA. <laughs> you know, if I could go back and tell this little baby girl something, I think I would tell her that, uh, you know, women can do murder too. We can do a little murder too, if, if we want to. I've already seen it like 10 times every single time. It's perfect. It hits the nail on the head, yeah. Perfect, perfect, it's perfect. empowering. I mean, I can't say it as a, as a man, I can't say it, but I imagine it's very empowering. <laughs> Listen, if you murder with a little bit more empathy, you just have to look in the right. person's eyes. That's women come to the table with more empathy. I think George W. Bush called that compassionate conservatism. It was, which he's still on, by the way. It has yeah. not died. I don't know if you guys got that memo from last week. Compassionate, compassionate conservatism has not died. And it, it, it's evolved into uh, painting photos of, of dogs. Um, all right, speaking of, of unrest, uh, which the CIA has had a lot of involvement in in the global south, Colombia is uh, on fire right now. And like no one seems to be covering what's happening in Colombia. Um, there are a series of protests. I think we do have a video. No, we don't have a video of it. I thought we did. Uh, there's a series of protests happening in Colombia right now civil unrest, um, it's been trending like crazy. And I'm trying to pull this up, I can't get the link. I don't know, I'm sorry guys, I thought there was a video, it's not a video. This is what happens when you have 16 jobs. So over, um, this all started just like every other country and at this time, over raising taxes on poor people as there's austerity, uh, as the tax proposal uh, was pushed out specifically on poor people, Protests came out. There's police violence. Uh, they're protesting over inequality and, and unemployment. Uh, and then immediately afterwards, they decided that they were going to get rid of the, um, the taxes on poor people. So here's what I would like to know. Um, CIA or whoever puts these leaders in charge, uh, or maybe it's just corporations. I mean, it's become so sophisticated. You'd think that given all of their strategies around uh, quelling and 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 killing the communists and and going after the left and putting spies and embedding them and all that kind of work, right? You think that they would know when they've gone too far? Like this is such an obvious one, and immediately they had to get rid of uh, this tax on poor people. So my question is, is like, did they know? Did they get a sense that it was going to go too far? There's a there's a, there's a We've all been involved in movements. There's a sense, like I'm in Puerto Rico right now, and the current governor immediately issued reforms because he was afraid, I believe, this is my editorializing, he, uh, reforms against the femicide for the uh, on the femicides because he didn't want to have a situation that they had here a year and a half ago where one third of Puerto Ricans turned out in protest of the governor and the governor, the only governor in history, had to step down. He didn't want that to happen to him. So I'm looking at the situation in Colombia and I'm like, are they blind? Do they not understand that this unrest is going to lead to something much, much bigger? And that's why I think they, they immediately responded uh, by getting rid of, of, of the tax hikes. But shouldn't they know that in advance? I mean, it's not happening here. Like we people can can go crazy and, you know, uh, protest and, you know, whether it's, you know, billionaires making like a trillion dollars or something last year as everyone else was, you know, was needing uh, just whatever small scrap of unemployment benefits they get, you know, 8 million people go into poverty. I mean, that stuff, I mean, because like we're, we're so brainwashed in the sense that so many working people and poor people have, you know, started, especially white ones that now lean to the right or are heavy white, but maybe the CIA doesn't realize that in other places, uh, 
people power works a lot better than it does here, or the government has to respond in a way that they've apparently just decided they're gonna change the voting rules here. And so maybe they're just blind to the fact that um, social movements work when uh, the power is not so entrenched as it is here. Well, I mean, we, we, we happen to like work through electoralism too. I mean, our electoral system on the Democratic side, it does, I mean, listen, I'm not like, I'm not gonna apologize to the Democrats. Obviously the police unions still have complete, have cities in America on a stranglehold, but unions still pressure Biden in a way that we didn't expect. Uh, it doesn't happen like in a minute. Like when we have civil unrest in, in our country, the reforms don't happen immediately. They happen in conjunction with electoralism. That's my perspective and, and labor, organized labor. In other countries, it shuts the country down. And they, I mean, there's just more of a culture of responding to civil unrest in a way that here, you know, it's, it's the, the, the pluses of our system is we do have more electoralism, but the minuses are when we do take to the streets, it's not as, as, as potent as other countries. Simon, what are you thinking? Yeah, I do think also that we're very heavily propagandized in the United States. That, like, with like as you're as uh, Jordan was talking about, like billionaires making a trillion dollars last year, as you know, people are being evicted, people are losing their jobs, people are struggling, people are losing their health care in the middle of a pandemic. Like, we ought to be out in the streets, right? Like over inequality, right? Yeah. Um, but. I, th I think that, you know, in capitalist economies, the state is always playing this balancing act of like, how much can we legitimate this exploitative economic system that uh, without going so far that the people rise up, right? And, and in case that happens, we have these like state sanctioned um, like militias who march through the streets with guns uh, to quell any kind of uh, uprising. So. Uh, and it, this, of course, has been totally normalized. And I guess in uh, Colombia, the, the state went too far, right? And so now they're, they're seeing the backlash of that. Well, they went too far because they were getting so much credit for being a more, uh, I don't want to say progressive, this wasn't progressive, but, but comparatively to Venezuela, to what's happening in Brazil, uh, to other South American countries, there's, the reform efforts had been a little bit more uh, potent, I guess. I'm not, I'm not going to like go all the way. So I think that's what, you know, the, the, what people are worried about is a sort of an Arab Spring scenario, mm -hmm. which was much slower. Um, each of the countries in North Africa had vastly different economies, vastly different political situations, vastly different cultural uh, norms, even though they were all Arabic. And I think there's a similarity in, in South America, maybe not culturally and like religious, but, but at least politically, the political dynamics based, and it's all, you know, it's all tied to natural resources. In, in, in North Africa, it was like, you know, Libya had, was, was rich because there was a lot of oil and Egypt was poor because there's no oil, et cetera. So they, uh, the conditions were different. And I'm glad you also mentioned right at the beginning of the segment that there, you know, the U United States has had a lot of involvement in Colombia, right, over like decades of uh, like intervention in the country and sort of the, the political situation now that has, you know, culminated in these protests. We are not like divorced from, from this economic interaction. Yeah. No, we're not. Don't worry, guys. Um, the woke CIA will solve it all. Yeah. Jordan Zacharin, Simon Road. Jordan's got a jet. I got a jet. We all got a jet. Uh, thank you all. And just just a little uh, uh, a note to the to folks.
thank you for your patience yesterday. We had to shift the show last minute. I'm really grateful to everybody, but thank God we had some pre-tapes. So it was really wonderful. Um, we have some shout outs. Bob Carmody, our fearless moderator says, breaking news, the logo of representative Lauren Boebert's pro-gun restaurant is being sold as an NFT by a rival political group after the Congresswoman let her ownership of it expire. That is some genius work. Genius. Craven James sends some love. Thank you, Craven James. Ian Kinzel says, when the CIA talks about being unapologetically you, I want to know if that extends to the anarchists <laughs> with cans of soup for their families. Very smart. Uh, shout out to everybody in the live chats. Thank you guys for joining as usual. Huge thank you to all of our moderators on YouTube and on Twitch and everybody who's, who's working at those algorithms. Um, those are the moderators. You guys are killing it. Uh, you're keeping our spaces troll free. Remember, not only are we on at 3 p.m. tomorrow, same time, same place, Twitch and YouTube, and of course on Patreon, but uh, the new committee show is the committee program is on Mondays from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Tell your friends, tell your family. It's a new show, so it takes a lot of buzz to get it going. Uh, and, and, and if you're not on, on one of our patrons, uh, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Super important because that's how we keep this show running. We have all different levels. Uh, definitely join us over there, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Prairie Fire Kowalski sends us some love as well. Thank you, Prairie Fire. And I think, I'm assuming Harvey Key is in the chat. So, hi, Harvey. Harvey, I, I got your text. I'm so buried right now. I'm going to an interview. Like, it's like, for folks who don't know, I'm filming a documentary uh, in my downtime. And so it's like one after the other after the other. And I just have to breathe for a second. So, love you all. Thank you. Take care. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you.